0: Open your Bibles, if you have one, to Second Samuel. We're continuing our study in Second Samuel. We are in chapter 19, verses 8 through 43. We are on number 55, I think I looked yesterday, number 55 sermons. 55 sermons in these two books, First, and second Samuel. We're wrapping up at the end of next month, the end of March, and beginning our series in the book of Galatians. Be reading and studying and, and um, doing your devotions in that book. That would be great. Uh, get ready for that next series will take us into the summer. <clears throat> so, just a little bit of context as we jump into our text this morning in chapter 19. As you know, Absalom, King David's son, has declared him, had declared himself king in Hebron. Absalom has been working very hard at his conspiracy against his father, King David, in hopes that he would destroy the king and take over the kingdom. He'd be the only one as king over Israel. And for a while there, if you've been tracking with us, it it was looking pretty good. Things were falling into place pretty nicely for Absalom. But there was one problem, one major problem that Absalom faced in his conspiracy. And that problem is God. (laughs) Although David was reaping the consequences of his sins, there was all kinds of struggles and strife in his family, he had repented of his sin and God pardoned him from his sin and God kept him as king he was still God's anointed he was still the king of Israel and that was a problem for Absalom Absalom was not just conspiring and, and fighting against King David his father but against God himself and that really is a, is a losing battle if you hear this morning and you heard the voice of God you know what God is calling you to uh, and calling you away from don't fight is a losing battle. Absalom will lose the war. And the battle that, take, that, takes, that took place between Absalom and, that was weird, Absalom and his father David, we find in chapter 18. Actually, the text tells us in 17 and 18 that all Israel has gone with Absalom, which means just a lot of folks. And they went up and they fought David in, if you remember from last week, the forest of Ephraim. It's a civil war, father against son. This is going on within Israel, within the 12 tribes. We'll talk about that in a minute. And if you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 7, it says this very clearly and plainly. It says that the men of Israel were defeated. They were the ones that were on Absalom's side. The men of Israel were defeated by the servants of David. Notice how that author says that. And the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men died. David wins. David is, is still the king. But there's one more thing that happened that, that changed the course of the kingdom. David had told his army, don't touch my son. Be gentle with my boy. Absalom. You know, the one that's conspiring, that wants me dead, that is now fighting against me and wants to kill not only me but my men. Be nice to him. Yet Joab, last week we saw, he's the commander of, Joab's the commander of David's army, came across Absalom hanging in a tree by his head, and we said probably his hair as well, and thrusted three spears into his chest, and the rest of the men finished them off, and Absalom now is dead. And chapter 18, verse 17 says at that point, all of Israel, that's the people that were with Absalom, everyone fled to his own home. And when David found out that Absalom had died, we know from last week that he went into a a serious, a serious, a serious mourning time. He was mourning in such a way over his son that Joab said, listen, you're, you're, you're being disrespectful to your soldiers. You're being disrespectful to those who have fought in your battle. All you care about is your own son, not all the men that fought and won and that kept you as king of Israel. And then he rebuked the king. He said, stop your crying, get up, and go out to the gate and meet your men coming back from battle. And to David's credit, that's exactly what he did. One last thing you need to know as we jump into the text in just a moment. David is not in Jerusalem, the city of God. Remember, David had fled Jerusalem because Absalom was going after him. So David left Jerusalem, and David's in a place called Mahanahim. Mahaneh, okay. Let me see if I could do this. I, I, I don't know if you could see that, but but um, let me just point. This is important to know. So everybody see where Judah is. Hold on one second. Here we go. I'm going to try this. Here's Judah. Okay. Right under Judah, I just put a white mark over it. It was Hebron. Trust me. <laughs> right below where it says Judah, that's Hebron. That's in southern Israel. Now, here is Jerusalem, okay, right in with Benjamin. Those are the 12 tribes, by the way, if you're not familiar. Those are the 12 tribes. Judah's in the south. It's important. So, you see where Gad is. Right above Gad, I'm going to put a mark through it. That's where David is right now, in the city of Mahanaim, or however you say it. Okay, that's where he's at. So, he's, David had fled Jerusalem, north, east. Now, here is the Jordan River. We're going to learn about that today. He's on that side of the Jordan. They had a fight, this forest of Ephraim, which is on the west side of the Jordan. The fight is over. Absalom is dead. David is He's coming down and he's going back to, so this is the way he's going, going back to Jerusalem, okay? That's what's happening right now. David is on his way back to Jerusalem, okay? You're welcome. A lot of you are going, really, do we need that? Yeah, we need all that. I'm going to tell you why. Three headings today. It's important because we're we're going to talk about the 12 tribes a little bit today and some of the the, the splitting of the kingdom, and you need to have that picture in your mind of where Judah is, where the northern and all the 12 tribes of Israel are. So three things uh, we're going to see. David's on his way home, as I said. You ever been on your way home, right? You ever ever been on on a vacation? Everybody loves vacation. Well, at least I do. My wife and I love to go on vacation. We love to see different places. But it's good to come home. It's nice to come home. Sleep in your own bed, your own kitchen, your own place. It's nice to come home. David's on his way home. He's coming back from Jerusalem. King's headed home. We're going to see David's political savvy. He's got some work to do within the kingdom. And then we're going to see David's pardoning stance. David, in an extraordinary attempt to solidify the kingdom, extends grace and mercy to three funny individuals. We'll just say that. And then finally, David's problem surfacing. We're going to see there's a problem that not, has not gone away that is still part of the kingdom that David has to deal with. So that's, that's where we're headed this morning. First, all the verses will not be up. So open your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter, uh, 19, verse 8. David's political savvy. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying... The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom, left Jerusalem. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zodak and Abiathar the priest. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to this house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? So see, there's a distinction between Judah and all Israel. I'll I'll explain that in a minute. Why, verse 12, you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king, Judah? Say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, return, both you and your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, right? Remember he's coming west to the Jordan. And Judah, remember where Judah was to the south, went north to meet him in Gilgal. To meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Okay? I hope you're tracking with me. You know there's an old saying, you can win the battle but lose the war. David has won the battle but now what? He's not in Jerusalem. Although he's, he's in Mahanaim. Absalom is dead, yes. The threat is gone. But now what? Now... David has to deal with all kinds of fighting, internal fighting. He, there's so many people that had backed Absalom. How is he going to unite the kingdom? If you remember, at the beginning of David's reign, he had a similar problem. There was a civil war. After King Saul died, two years later, Abner declared Amiphasheth king. No, no, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, he, he declared. Let me—I got it in my notes here somewhere. Ishbosheth, king, the division of the kingdom. Saul had died. Abner said, "Ishbosheth, Saul's son, you're the king." And yet David is in Judah; he's declared king. And there's civil war. If you remember that chapter two through five, and Ishbosheth was king for for a little while, and there was two kings in Israel. And then Ishbosheth is murdered and David unifies the kingdom and all the people of Israel, all the 12 tribes, come down to Hebron and declare David king over all the 12 tribes of Israel. The kingdoms will split. If you know the history of, of Israel, when Solomon becomes king, there will be officially two kingdoms. And it's important for you to know, there's 10 kingdoms to the north called Israel. There are two kingdoms to the south, Judah and Benjamin called Judah. There's a, the split takes place. But you see the, 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 the actual working of this splitting of this kingdom here in Samuel. We saw it earlier in the, in the Civil War. And here again, you have the, all Israel with is the northern kingdoms. And then you have Judah to the south. And what's going on is Absalom loses, gets killed. All his troops go back over the Jordan and go to their prospective tribes. Word gets out. All over Israel, words out, Absalom is dead. And they start debating, what are we going to do? What's going to happen to the nation? Are we going to realign ourselves back with David? That's a problem. It appears that all Israel, the northern kingdom, are arguing. They're they're discussing, what are we going to do? We have a dilemma. Absalom's dead. Let's just make believe all this didn't happen. Let's go and get the king. Actually, the word here, if you'd see in your text in chapter 19, the word arguing in verse 9 has a legal uh, connotation to it. And some commentators say they're arguing and discussing whether or not the covenant that David made with Israel is still in place. David had made a covenant with the northern tribes and said, I will be your king. I will fight your battles. Well, that was before they all said, you know what? We're done with you. We're going to go align ourselves with Absalom. Is he still going to do what's necessary. What kings do, is he going to fight our battles? Are we going to bring him back into the kingdom and, and he will establish himself as king? They made a, a silly and stupid mistake and now their savior, Absalom, is dead. Verse 9 and 10, you see the reference, king, twice. We, we made a real bad decision. And they say, you know what? Look, look with me, verse 10. Why are we not talking about bringing him back? A lot of good intentions. No one seems to be doing anything. And somehow, David hears what's going on in the tribes. David hears that they're talking, they're arguing, they're discussing all this in the tribes of Israel. And David sends messengers. See what it says in verse 11. David sends messengers to the elders of Judah, southern part through his, his friends, his trusted friends, Abiathar and Zodak. Remember where they were? They're in Jerusalem. They're in, this, they're in that Benjamin Judah area. And he, and he said, listen, you guys, you've been on my side. You, 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 if you remember the story, they, they were looking out for David. Talk to the elders. Talk to the people. And you see what David is doing? David is, David is confronting a shattered kingdom, a split kingdom. And the question is, he is seeking to do or seeking to fulfill is unifying the kingdom and it's a power play it's a political move it's it's, it's a political savvy on his part he first he says to him listen why should you guys be the last one why should my own tribe be the last one to bring me home what's so interesting is in judah is hebron that's where david was first made king earlier in the in the book Hebron was the place where Absalom was made king. And it's the same place that kicked David to the curb and joined Absalom. And now he's saying, you guys are my, are you guys gonna support me? David does not want the people of Judah, that southern tribe, to come to the conclusion that since they backed Absalom, they are now his enemies. So David extends amnesty. David extends to them uh, a, 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 an olive branch, and he not only appeals to their pride but to the relationship. Look what he says: "You're my closest kin. Kin, you're the bone, uh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh." Verse thirteen. Judah was there first with David. Judah's the one that stepped to the plate even before the other 10 tribes. But there's a problem. What if the elders went back? What if they went back and the priests? they all got together at, at, in Judah and told Judah everything David said, but it was a trap. What if David says, go back to Judah, tell them, look, everything is cool, no problem, and then they come and meet David and David kills everybody. You say, no, well, read your Bible. <laughs> what if he's luring them? What if he's looking for revenge? Just in case that's on their radar, look what David does, a bold move. He takes Joab, his commander, and gives his commander's job to Amasa. Amasa is Absalom's commander, it was anyway. He's the enemy's commander, and Joab now loses a job to this guy. Is David getting revenge for Joab for killing his son? I don't know. Was he he punishing him? Joab, you know what? You're out of a job now. You want to kill my son? I told you not to do it. I don't know. I I think it certainly was a shrewd move to reunite this fractured kingdom. Perhaps there were many elements, but that's a bold move. That's sort of like President Trump making an announcement today that Nancy Pelosi is now his new Secretary of State. (laughs) I knew that would get a rise out of y'all. (laughs) that ain't going to happen. Well, I don't think anybody saw this coming either. (laughs) Verse 14, it worked. He swayed the hearts of all the people. All the hearts of the men of Judah as one. All right, well, if he's that serious. So they send word to the king, return, you and your servants, come on. And the point that David is trying to make and communicate to the people, he's willing to offer to them forgiveness, to, to reconcile with them, even though they raised their hands against the king. The anointed one. What a picture of the gospel, is it not? Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Second Corinthians 5.19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, our trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. King David wants to reconcile with Judah. but That points to the better and greater king, King Jesus, who is willing to forgive, willing to reconcile with rebels like you and me. Jesus is willing to enlist the rebel and let let the rebel join his army to serve his majesty rather than remain as an enemy in a rebellion of God. That's love. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. This is love, he says. Verse 15, so the king got the message, came back to the Jordan and now look what it says and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. I I just want to point something out, it's really rich here. Gilgal is one of those places that have a lot of historical references, rich heritage there. It's on the west side of the Jordan in the valley near Jericho David I want you to picture this. He's coming down and he meets Judah. And the context says he's meeting there. Why? For this new crossing into the Jordan, over the Jordan, excuse me, into Jerusalem, the city of God. That's what's happening. That's the context. And that would bring all kinds of remembrances to the people of Israel because that was the first place. That was the first resting place where the Israelites under Joshua set foot in the soil of Canaan on the way to the promised land after God had delivered them from Egypt. It was the place where they acknowledged the Lord's great power and how much God has done for them. Gilgal was the place where the second generation of Jews came and renewed their covenant by circumcising, and circumcising the men and they renewed their covenant with God. Gilgal was the place where Samuel was and drew all the kingdom to renew their covenant and now we see David in Gilgal, with Judah, once again, looking to renew the kingdom and to come into Jerusalem. David's political savvy. David's pardoning stance. Now, verses 16 through 40, longest section in the narrative, it involves some people we saw before. They become recipients, as David is entering into Jerusalem, this is so cool, they, they become recipients of David's pardoning and grace, and David's blessing. Let's look at them again. Shimei, verse sixteen. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Beruim, hurried to come down from the men with the men of Judah to meet King David. We keep seeing that king, king, king. He's king. And 17, verse 17, And with them were a thousand men from Benjamin, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. They crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty. Or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore behold I have come this day the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai the son of Zeruas answered shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the lord's anointed? But David said what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Should anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I, for, for do I not know that I, was, I am this day king over Israel? God is doing something here. Verse 23, and the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Now is not a stranger to us. He's not a stranger to David for sure. But there's political change is going on and Shimei is now changing his allegiances. He's a descendant of Saul. He's the guy that was harassing David when David left Jerusalem as he was fleeing Jerusalem. Absalom was in hot pursuit of him back in chapter 16. He's the guy, I think Pastor Richie, Ricky uh, preached on it, right? He, he comes running at him, screaming, cursing at him and cursing down on him and throwing rocks at him. And that... In chapter 16, Abishai, Joab's brother, at that point turned and said, let me take his head off. That'll shut him up. Off with the head. All right, you know, all he needs is the nod from David and it's over. No courts, just he's dead. And David says, to him, no, 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 let him be. Now that guy is back. The wind is blowing in a different direction. David now is coming home to be king and he meets him there with thousands of men uh, from Benjamin and he's somewhat remorseful. And he is is about as cautious now as he was cavalier before. And he falls down, verse 19, don't hold me guilty. Don't hold me guilty. And definitely don't remember how I treated you the other day. Please, all that cursing, all those rocks, I had a bad day. You know, I was just having a really bad day. And verse 20, he says, I have sinned. And right on cue, Abishai wants to kill him again for cursing at the Lord. But David's like, you know... I could just see him turning to Zerua for like the 35th thousandth time. What is with you guys? Always want to kill somebody. Leave him alone. This day is a special day. I'm trying to unite the kingdom and solidify the kingdom. I'm going back to Jerusalem. No one's going to die. Yes, he deserves to die. Leave him alone. And he gives him a promise. You will not die. Now, scholars, and I've read plenty of them this week, are on both sides of the fence, whether this guy is seriously is serious about his repentance. Did he really repent? Or is there just confession without repentance? God knows the truth, right? Some say, well, you know, his timing is pretty good. David's leaving Jerusalem, he's cursing him out. David's coming back to Jerusalem, you're my best friend. Doesn't look very good. And then he says, you know what? I'm bringing, you know, all of the house of Joseph is the largest tribe there was. Like, I'm on your side. And that's, you know, some people say he's just an opportunist, man. You know what I mean? Uh, Absalom's in control. David, you're no good. Absalom's dead. You're my man. Looking out for himself. I will tell you this. Something very interesting. You might want to jot this down. I'm going to read it to you. In 1 Kings chapter 2, David is on his deathbed. And David is about to die. And David is going to turn the kingdom over to Solomon. And this is what David says to King Solomon on his deathbed. Listen to this. Chapter 2, verse 8, First Kings. He says, Shammai, remember that guy Shimmai, Who cursed me with, with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came to meet me at the Jordan, I swore, I swore to him by the Lord, I won't put you to death by the sword. I did promise him that, Solomon. Now therefore, do not hold him guiltless for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him and you shall bring his gray head down from Sheol. His blood to Sheol. In other words, I promised him, but you didn't. That's the way I read it. I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put him to death. You know what to do. You shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. So I don't think David even thought he was sincere. But here's the point. David does extend forgiveness to him. David does extend grace to him anyway. And as I was was thinking about that, I was thinking if, if, if my confession and repentance needs to be completely sincere in order to be forgiven, I'm in trouble. You're in trouble, right? Like the man who cried out, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Sometimes that's the way I live. It's interesting, though, how Abishai, who was unwilling to pardon, is in opposition to the king who's willing to forgive. And that reminds me, I think, of times that I've run into people who believe that certain sins, certain things that certain people do, in certain circumstances, will never be forgiven. They're too far gone. Their sins are too grievous They, of course, want grace and forgiveness for themselves and justice for other people. They don't believe God's grace is sufficient for certain sins. Beware of those people. Beware of the people who boast in the gospel. Let me finish. They boast in their forgiveness, their grace, and their mercy and God's pardon. At the same time, look down on others. Because that's really an indication they don't understand the gospel. Minimally, or they never really been transformed by it. Because anyone who comes to face reality, face-to-face with reality of how broken and sinful their hearts really are, and how great and merciful and mighty God is, you don't really understand the gospel. Here we see King David coming to Jerusalem and forgiving sinners, and that wonderfully anticipates the true king. David's greater son, King Jesus, when he came into Jerusalem, do you remember that? The week before he was crucified and the crowds gathered around him, Matthew 28, what were they singing? Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna, save now. Our Savior has come. Yes, they were looking for a political king, I get that. But Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to save us. He would die on a cross, his blood would be shed. He would pardon sinners who say, I've sinned against you. Forgive me. And God always forgives, pardons, and shows grace and mercy to the repented sinner. We have seen this grace and this mercy of God working in David's life throughout Samuel. Now we see the grace and mercy and pardoning of God working through David to others. And family, listen, that's how it's supposed to work. If you don't know that, I'm here to tell you that, okay? That's how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to receive mercy, and then you extend mercy. You're supposed to receive grace in the gospel, you extend grace. You're supposed to receive God's love in the gospel, you're supposed to extend love. You're supposed to receive forgiveness and pardon of God, you're supposed to extend forgiveness and pardon of God. It's the gospel. It's the gospel transformation that happens in our lives. And once again, mercy rejoices over judgment. And forgiveness and pardon is given. Next we see our boy, Mephibosheth. With a head cold, it's even harder to say these words, boy. <laughs> king is, Mephibosheth is King Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son. If you remember, Jonathan and David were close friends. They were in a covenant friendship together, but they're both dead. Verse 24, and Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, they say that in Hebrew, they mean the grandson, came down to meet the king. Mephibosheth comes down. He had neither taken care of his feet, Nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. Tell me the Bible's not like just telling it like it is, right? Like who needed to know that? From the day the king departed until the day he came back to safety. And when he came to Jerusalem, some people think when he he came from Jerusalem... Instead of saying to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, he's meeting. They're still at that place in Gilgal, crossing over. Possibly they inserted this story later on, I don't know. But either way, this man comes to to the king. He meets the king. And the king says to him, verse 25, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? When I left Jerusalem, when I was leaving Jerusalem, why didn't you follow me out? And he answered him, Lord, king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will, lay, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I, would, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered, he's talking about Ziba. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God, the messenger of God. Do therefore what seems good to you, O king, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord King David, you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than just cry out to the king? Verse 29, and the king said to him, Why speak any more of this affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba, the one who's deceiving you, will divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. Now, a little just quickly background of this story. Mephibosheth is the grandson of Saul and again, the son of Jonathan. When he was a young boy, he was being carried by his nurse. And when the nurse found out that his father and grandfather died, the boy was dropped and became lame. And when David came into his kingdom, into Jerusalem, he remembered the covenant he made with Jonathan, his friend, that he would care for his family. So David said, listen, is there any descendants of Jonathan here in the city, in Jerusalem. And they said, yeah, there's a guy named Ziba. Talk to him. David calls up Ziba and Ziba says, yes, actually there's a young boy, he's lame. His name is Mephibosheth. He's the grandson of Saul and the son of Jonathan. David extends chesed, you know that word, loving, loyal, covenant kindness to Mephibosheth, calls him to the kingdom, calls him to Jerusalem and says, you sit at my table. All the days of your life. In fact, not only Methuselah you sit at my table. I'm going to remember the covenant I made with your father. You sit at my table. I'm going to give you Ziba and all Ziba's servants as your servants. That's the way it's going to go down. Everything is good. Then David is rushed out of Jerusalem because Absalom's coming after him. And who shows up? Ziba. Ziba tells him a whole different story. Ziba, David says where's Mephibosheth and Ziba's like oh he's a turncoat man he's, he stayed back at Jerusalem he's hanging out with Absalom he's a traitor and David's like what Ziba's like yeah he's a traitor David says to Mephibosheth excuse me David says to Ziba then you can have all this property everything that I gave to Mephibosheth is now yours now all of a sudden in our text is a different story Mephibosheth says, Ziba's a liar. When he met with you, he wasn't telling the truth. He wouldn't let me ride a donkey. I'm lame. I couldn't get on. He's not telling you the truth. He's not telling you the truth. He deceived you. He deceived me. And to show you that I'm serious, I won't cut my toenails. I'm not going to trim my beard. And in King James language, I stinketh. I want to show you how sincere and serious I really am. There are other ways to do that, family. You don't have to go to that extreme. And Mephibosheth meets David here, but he's confident. Verse 27, you're an angel of God. You need to figure this out. Mephibosheth was a man who's experienced the kindness of David before. And he reminds him, verse 28, of all that David has done. And this says, I have no right to ask anything of you. He he seems to be simply content that David is now coming home. If you're David, what do you do? You heard Ziba's story that Mephibosheth is a turncoat, a traitor, staying with Absalom. That's what Ziba first said. Now you hear Mephibosheth saying, no, Ziba's a liar. He's a conniver. He didn't tell the truth. What do you do? Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other one comes and examines him. Remember that when you're watching your favorite uh, uh, news station, right? What do, you do? what do you do? Who's telling the truth? Commentators, again, are all over the place. Either, either Ziba's a liar and Mephibosheth is telling the truth and David should just really just say, you know what? Okay, Ziba gets nothing. Or maybe Ziba's telling the truth and Mephibosheth is a liar and he's just backtracking because he's a con man. He sees the wind blowing. What does David do? Look at verse 29. He splits it. Some say, you know what? He don't even know. He's like, listen, I heard both sides of the story. I don't know who's telling the truth. I got bigger fish to fry. I got a lot more going on than your piddly argument over the land. You split the land, each get half. That's what he says. He gets half. Personally, I think, you could talk about this in a community group, I think Mephibosheth is telling the truth. I think David splits the property because, because Ziba had given him Lots of, of food and stuff that David needed at the time. As he was leaving Jerusalem, Ziba provided for him. And yet, David still wanted to keep his covenant that he made with, with Jonathan. So he splits the land. Here's your reward, Ziba. And Mephibosheth says, here's a piece of property for you. But look down at verse 30. It seems to me that this man, Mephibosheth, the lame one, is genuinely glad to see David. And he says to David, listen, I don't even want half the property. Look what he says. Let Ziba take it all. Let him take it all. My Lord is home safely. That's all that matters to me. It's sort of like David's other son, Solomon, later on, who would later threaten to divide a living baby in order to discern which mother was telling the truth. Both mothers said that "That baby's mine. So he said, split the baby in half. Remember that? And then, of course, the birth mother said, no, 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 take the baby. More important that the baby lives is my child, and here David demand, uh, excuse me divides the land to discern who's telling the truth. One commentator wrote this: "Just as the real mother of the living baby offered the child, about Solomon to the false claimant in order to preserve its life, so Mephibosheth offers the entire state to Zeba, End quote. I think he genuinely cared. That's where I fall. That he's returning. He was grateful. Um, he remembers all the past that David has done for him, and. Remember, Mephibosheth is in dire need of help. He's lame. He doesn't have any ways to provide for himself. It's not like the government's going to help him in any way, shape, or form. And he's experienced the undeserved grace of God and the kindness of David. And look what he says. I, there's nothing I want from you. David, there's nothing. You're home safely. You have been so kind, so generous, and, 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 and so loyal to my father. What can I ask? What can I ask? You know, when we experience the undeserved grace of God, when we experience the kindness of the greater son of David, Jesus, in the gospel, what else can we want? What else can we ask for? Our greatest need has been met, our sins forgiven, debt has been paid. Isn't that where we find our ultimate joy, our ultimate contentment, knowing that our king is has come, our King has pardoned our sin for all eternity. Isaiah 12. Listen to Isaiah shouting about joy, about a salvation. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water From the wells of salvation. You will say in that day. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Proclaim that his name is exalted. That's the joy. That's the joy. And here's our man. Brasili. He's the third guy David runs into. Remember him. He's He's a wealthy man. He's 80 years old. Look what it says, verse 31. Now Brazili, the, the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim and he went on with the king to the Jordan to, ask him, to escort him over the Jordan. Brazili was a very aged man, 80 years old. It's really not that old. I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. <laughs> he had provided the king with food while they stayed at Mahanim, for he was very wealthy. And the king said to "I come over with me. I'll provide for you. Come with me to Jerusalem. And Brazil said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am to this day 80 years old. Can I discern discern what is pleasant and what is not? And I want to say, I hope so. <laughs> I'm going to be 80, I hope. Can you servants taste what he eats or what he drinks? The answer is no, but I'm saying, I hope so. Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Huh, can't hear you. Why then should your servant be an added burden to the Lord, the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? But, verse 37, let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my mom and dad, father and mother. But here, your servant, Shimam, let him go over with the Lord and, and do whatever seems good to you. Verse 38, and the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over and kissed Brazillai and blessed him and he returned to his own home. That's this poor 80 year old guy. I just want to go home and die at home. I don't want to bury my mom and dad. I really don't need to be a blessing. Uh, I don't even really need to be your blessing. I, I'm wealthy as it is. Um, I, I just want to go home. And it's probably uh, uh, not a relative. This other guy, Shimon, he's had just a, a, a friend, or maybe a relative. I don't know. But bless him instead. And what's interesting in Jeremiah 41:17, Jeremiah talks about a place called Geruth. Chimham, which means hospitality offered to Chimham. So it's a piece of property that has been given in remembrance of this man, of this blessing that has been given to him. And King David says, I want to bless you. And Brazil is like, listen, I don't need any blessing. You have been, you've been more than kind, king. You just go. And, and it, it kind of makes me wonder or makes me think, and I hope it makes you think too, are we saying that to the king? In other words, are, are we willing to serve the king? Are we willing to, to meet the king? Are we willing to give of, our, of our, our talents, our treasures, our love and devotion to the king? Not looking for anything, just, just want to bless you. Ask yourself, what can I do this week for the kingdom? What can I do to show forth the love, to show forth the grace and the generosity of the gospel? What can I do this week so that God gets glory that they see not my own good deeds and worship me, but see my good and deeds and what? Glorify my Father in heaven. That's what Brazilia is doing. And we see now David slowly and steadily marching from Gilgal to Jerusalem. And what he's doing? He, he's, he's taking those who are at odds with him and he's marching right into their hearts. Shimei, Ziba, Mephibosheth are reconciled to David. You see this pardoning this covenant keeping this blessing characterizing the king as he's coming home with all three people but there's a problem verse 40 the king went to gilgal and chimam went with him and all the people of judah and also half the people of israel brought the king on his way Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? Now remember, the northern kingdoms is called all Israel. Judah's to the south. Judah went to meet with him. And now all Israel has got a problem. Okay, you following me? Verse 42. All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. Now notice he says, notice verse 41 again. They said to David, but the men of Judah answer. They say, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at the king's expense? Or or has he given us gifts? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah. We have 10 shares in, in the king. And in David also we have more than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now what's going on is that strife again. And that strife is going to continue into the next chapter. You have all of Judah and only half of Israel. See the problem? It appears that the argument that they were having in chapter 19, verse 9, they didn't come to any kind of consensus. Only half of Israel showed up. But then all of Israel is ready to, to take on a fight. They're like, why are you, Judah, bringing him home? And, and there's this envy, there's this jealousy and there's this frustration and anger and out the mouth it comes. They say, you've stolen our king. Israel says to Judah, you've stolen our king. And Judah's like, listen, he's, he's, he's our flesh and blood. Mind your business. Furthermore, we didn't get nothing special. Do we eat at this table? I mean, there's nothing special about us. And Israel says, yeah, well, there's 10 tribes, there's only one of you. There's 10 of us. Sounds like an argument in the kindergarten class, right? Well, it's 10 of us, only one of you. Yeah, he's part of, he's my flesh, he's my relative. Yeah, well, uh, nothing's changed, right, over the years. Nothing has changed. Something's never changed. Anyway, the argument doesn't end there. It ends in verse, as I said, the last verse. The Judah was fiercer. That word means hard, stubborn, severe, petty jealousy and strife, embitterment toward each other. Tensions are at an all time high. And any precipitous action on David's part can cause a situation to absolutely ignite. David is trying to unite the kingdom. I really believe he's trying to do that. He's trying to bring the two kingdoms together. The northern tribe and the southern tribe to get along so we can come to Jerusalem and have a united kingdom. But let me tell you something. There will never be There will never be a true united kingdom. There will never be true peace. There will never be anything absent, any kind of absence of hostility until the Prince of Peace himself comes. Again, we see here, A foreshadow of what Jesus has done and has already done. His death on the cross, his subsequent resurrection from the grave. Jesus' extraordinary victory and his reign as king has accomplished the unifying of God's people. There's a lot of division today, right? Right? I don't know if it's just maybe if you're older than me and you remember. I don't remember too much, <laughs> but there's a lot. There seems to be an undertaking, a, a a cause on both sides to cause some sort of separation, some way in which we can clamp down and not get along. I got my views, I got my ideologies, and even right now you're saying, "Yeah, but my side is right." That side is wrong. So much division. But know this: no side is all right. In fact, no side, no political arm, no political views, no ideologies, uh, uh, no political party, no political person has it all right. It'll be all right when the all right one comes, when Jesus, the righteous one, comes to reign and to rule. There'll be no more bickering. You won't be able to say, no, that's not the way it should be done. That's not going to happen. Many of you know that in Corinth, we studied the book together, there's a lot of issues in that church. There are a lot of problems. Some guy's kissing his father's wife. They're, They're getting drunk at the communion table. They're abusing spiritual gifts. But you know what Paul addresses first and foremost in the Corinthian church, as jacked up as they were? Disunity. Division. Bickering strifes among the people. How do you get unity, Paul? How do you get unity in the church? You don't create it, you join it. His name is Jesus. That's why Paul told the Corinthian church what's most important, first importance above every single thing you ever know and ever think, the first important thing is that Christ died for your sins, 1 Corinthians 15. He was buried, he rose again from the grave, the gospel. When we're united with Christ in union with Christ and the gospel, we'll have unity. When the church was born, when, when the Spirit descended upon the church at Pentecost and, and, and the Holy Spirit was given, there was a massive gospel movement. People were going all over from, from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth sharing the gospel. But you know what else happened? Bickering. Arguing particularly between the Jews and the non-Jews. There was issues like food and washing, observance of festivals. But you know what the biggest problem was in the church? The biggest bickering going on was, how does a man or a woman or a child become right with God? Do they have to go back to the Old Testament, get circumcised, do the things of the Old Testament, become an Old Testament Jew, then become a Christian? And there was a battle, there was bickering, there was division. You know what Paul told them? Paul says in Ephesians 2, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, non-Jews, in the flesh called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, Jews and the un-Jews, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope without God. But now, in Christ, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Listen, the coming of our King, King Jesus, has accomplished and will accomplish what David returned could never do. And that's unity. I'm going to read you Revelation as the band comes up. Now listen to this. And we're going to respond in worship of Jesus. Listen. John sees a vision. In chapter 7 of Revelation. A great multitude no one could number. Every nation. Every tribe. Every tongue. All people standing before the throne. Before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes. Palms in their hands. Crying out with a loud voice. Salvation. Belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders. And the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. All nations, all tongues, all tribe, no one is excluded. Everyone can come. Repent and believe all nations, all tongues, and all tribes. May we never be a people to look down on others. May we always be a people to love others because of the grace that God has given us in the gospel. Father, we are so thankful that you have rescued us from sin, from death, from wrath, from deserved justice by your grace. Love and your mercy. Oh God, help us to welcome Jesus into our hearts, to worship Him in spirit and truth, and help us never, never, never look down on others, but recognize that we all come the same way, and that is through the gospel. Jesus' death, his blood shed, dying for our sins, going into the tomb, and then rising victorious over the grave is our only hope. Help us, Father to worship him and to proclaim him through all the world in Jesus' name, amen.